0: I think it's fair to say to put it simply there's a smallish proportion of the population who are kind of born with this built-in innate ability to be a bit more bounce backable a bit more resilient but the vast majority of us develop resilience through a process of learning and absorbing and as we said before trying failing and then just pulling yourself back onto your feet
1: Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited we've got an expert in the house. We we have so many stories that come on to the show and I'm I'm pretty much sure that you've got a story too, Dr. Philip. But um, we've got Dr. Philip Poppley, who's a consultant psychiatrist. We wanna talk about mental resilience, we wanna talk about getting through tough times, Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Petra. Lovely to be with you today.
1: It's great to have you. Um, So did you always want to be a psychiatrist? I'm always interested in that first of all. No, not at all.
0: I mean, I was a kid that grew up. um, I happened to be good at science at school, reasonably bright, worked reasonably hard. And my mother had worked in healthcare for many years. She'd been a nurse, a health visitor, a midwife. And I think she realized that it was a great career for someone who had an interest in science. So I was kind of discreetly indoctrinated over the years. And I popped out of school and I'd applied for medical school, got in, and that was the direction. In terms of psychiatry, yeah, definitely the first subject I did that I connected very strongly to. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that... Um, you know, you don't have to be immersed in reading and in knowledge to be able to connect and talk to people. And that was one of my strengths. And maybe I hadn't done quite so much of the academic work to get into the other specialties as effectively. But also at the time when I was qualifying, I was very keen on sports, played a lot of high level rugby. And the natural career progression for someone like me would be to look at sports injuries, orthopedic surgery. But actually, the game was turning professional in the UK. And I couldn't balance the time demands of both and because I'd really enjoyed psychiatry that was a better work-life blend and so the two went together perfectly.
1: It sounds like the perfect plan um, of knowing what to do. I think any of us on some of the, the mental health routes. I'm a psychotherapist um, kind of go into it with, with the best intentions of of course helping people but the process of self-development and self-awareness for me was, was pretty profound as well. Did you find that you learned things about yourself through that process as well? Yeah, I mean,
0: I'd started my learning journey much younger than that. I was a very anxious kid. And by the time I was starting to play competitive rugby, so 12, 11, 12, 13, I sort of had this awareness about how anxious I would get. And it could even start the day before. So if we're playing on a Saturday at school on a Friday from lunchtime, I'd be starting to get that kind of churning in the stomach, those physiological symptoms of anxiety. And my father, who's not a medical man, you know, kind of picked up on that. And he sort of, without knowing it, uh, suggested a very helpful cognitive intervention. So he said, well, well, why do you play? And I said, well, I play because I really enjoy it. And he said, what do you enjoy? And I said, the thing I enjoy most is the post-match kind of debrief, that sense of achievement, feeling warm, shared experience with teammates, singing on the bus on the way home. We were young kids at the time. And he said, well, why don't you think about that when you're worrying about the game and, and think about how good it's going to be further down the line? And Within weeks, I had a solution to help me deal with my pre-match anxiety.
1: That's so great. That's like visualization and manifestation and feeling the next level and, and connecting to the purpose and all those kind of kind of coachy ways of getting through something. Did it work um, like many of these things, they don't necessarily work like a magic pill, but did you begin practicing that? Like what was that journey from that point?
0: Yeah, it was all the things you described. And of course, it was also marrying up and identifying the fact that biologically, when we feel threatened, those physiological feelings are very similar to how we feel when we get excited, Petra. And it's just the meaning that's different. So if we can change the meaning, change the perception around it, it makes a massive difference. No, that for me became transformational. And over the course of the next few years, at school, I was successful, had a number of senior roles you know I was head of the combined cadets force I was captain cricket team I was head boy and each of those was a challenge because I wasn't that self-confident still but I learned through that process to be able to really I guess face my fears and if you're competent and you can build competence around exposure and opportunity things really do move forward quite quickly people would never know now that I was that kind of really shy avoidant kid when I was younger
1: Who pushed you or how did you, were were you like driven to a sense of achievement or was there a bit of a push?
0: Yeah, I mean, eldest of three boys, all good at sports. So there was always that sort of um, fraternal competition that was there. I went to a school where back in those days, sport was probably more highly valued than academic rigor. And so that kind of drove things along. But both of my parents were self-made. My mother came from a big Irish family on a farm in Ireland left home at 18 to come over here to start her career as a nurse. And my father, no kind of post-grad or undergraduate qualification, just made his way in life. And so I think I had just passively observed and absorbed that the sort of hardworking ethos is what enabled them to be successful. So that was what came together for me.
1: I love that. There is something just about modeling work ethic and um, I guess showing our kids, I've got two teenagers myself, um, that... Just because you have a fail or something that doesn't go well doesn't make it the end of the world. It doesn't make you a failure. It means you're trying hard and iterating and becoming who you need to be or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That lesson around resilience and bouncing back, I think, is absolutely key. And what I love, for we've got four kids, and what I love about what we hear through school education these days is that kids are being really strongly encouraged just to, to try things and to be prepared to fail. Because that kind of driven perfectionism that we see in teenagers allied with some of the social pressures that social media can kind of mount up can be quite a toxic combination so i think to be able to take a risk knowing that whatever happens you'll have that support from peers friends from teachers from parents from family it's really really important
1: yeah, and not every school or family kind of creates that environment for their kids. And what's what, what could be detrimental to a young person uh, when there is maybe that toxic perfectionism or this idea that you must go this certain route or do this certain thing in this certain way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think managing expectations and setting realistic expectations is so important. And we see this transgenerational effect where different cohorts of people becoming parents have a different approach to how they manage things I think there's a we're in a particularly unusual set of circumstances at the moment but if we just put that to one side for a second and and say how things would have been up until a few months ago I think that there is this um there is this unwritten expectation that people have to be self-made in western society and achieve financially job security etc and and for me that's a that's a potentially a big big clash because you're pulling yourself away from something that might give you value, meaning, reason, and fulfillment towards something that, okay, might make you financially successful and comfortable, but actually doesn't necessarily tick the really important deeply rooted boxes we've got. And going back to the school scenario, I won't name the school, but I was at a, an evening with one of my kids some years ago, and the previous headmistress was giving this message to the kids. That she was saying, now, when you come to choose your GCSE subjects, make sure you choose things you're good at, not that you necessarily like. And I was like, I, I really wanted to shout out, that's wrong. That's wrong. That, that can't be right. But, you know, in those days, they were so focused on the grades they were getting because of the league tables and the need to achieve. So important kind of messages from parents and from education settings are really important. You go after things that enrich you, enthuse you, give you value. That's That's really key for me.
1: I love that. Find something that, you, that brings you joy and chase that thing and become. you can become better at it through, through skill and development. Um, so I didn't expect us to go down the, the teenager-child route, but it's always interesting. Like, what are the components that have made us who we are today? I'm mm. one of, well, I'm one of nine siblings, but I'm one of five that I grew up with. And I was raised in a religious cult, very alternative upbringing, leading to kind of a pretty dark time in my life. But, um, and and from, from there, I sort of bounce back. My audience knows this, this story quite well. But it's always interesting for me to, to almost, not compare, but kind of observe myself versus my siblings and the amount of, of things I've been through, but equally the amount of resilience and drive I've just got this dogged ambition to, to build, to achieve these sorts of things. And not all of them have it, but essentially mm. we grew up in a similar environment. I heard recently at a talk, and you may or may not know about this, that there is actually a resilience gene that some of us have a higher sort of baseline, but that it can, I guess, be activated through life. What, what do you think just about that difference in, in even a sibling group?
0: Yeah, so me and the team at Cognasty do a lot of research and training in this area. And, and I think it's fair to say, to put it simply, there's a smallish proportion of the population who are kind of born with this built-in innate ability to be a bit more sounds backable, a bit more resilient, but the vast majority of us develop resilience through a process of learning and absorbing, and as we said before, trying, failing, and then just pulling yourself back onto your feet. So for me, I think there's a whole range of factors that come into play depending on where you're growing up, what the circumstances are, your exposure to challenges, Think about a number of people I was at school with who would have grown up in a very comfortable existence and they sailed through and they were kind of, you know, A grade students all the way. And it wasn't really maybe until they went to university and had their first failed relationship that they tasted a struggle. And because they had had things go relatively smoothly up until that point, the impact on them compared to someone who'd maybe grown up in a more challenging environment was massively exaggerated. So they fell to pieces emotionally because they didn't have the bandwidth to know what this was like to recognise the emotions they were experiencing which are unpleasant and to know what to do with it away from family and, and isolated. So I think it's a combination of the personal and the kind of experiential growing up and then, most importantly, what does that give you in terms of your own personal psychological resources?
1: Well, and So what meaning do you give it in order to inform the next time you experience some kind of challenge? Are you then more bounce-backable, as you say, Um, Or is it just like, oh, my God, like this this sort of victim mentality of the world is against me? It really is about perspective, isn't it?
0: Yeah, perspective and also recognizing those automatic thoughts that many of us grow up just in certain patterns of thinking. People talk about schemas or, or other things. But, you know, what is it that I do in my thinking style that would be different from someone else under the same set of circumstances? And certainly from our experience, catastrophizing, personalization and all or nothing thinking would be three styles which are very manifest in, in people who are competitive and successful. And if they're not recognized, if we don't have self-awareness, then you can see how people get into problems when the road gets a bit bumpy.
1: So to say those three things again. One was personali- personalization. yeah. Personalization,
0: so believing that things really significantly apply to you, that you've got that en- enhanced sense of responsibility for things going well, but also particularly when they don't go so well catastrophizing so you have some bad news and you fast forward immediately to the worst case possible scenario most people do that at some stage and then you look back and think actually it wasn't nearly as bad as i was thinking and then the all or nothing thinking people used to call it black or or white yeah everything has to be just so otherwise if it falls short somehow we failed you know so there's no sense of something being pretty good it has to be just so just perfect
1: yeah, yeah. And so people who may adhere to one of those three styles, let's bring this into the present now. So we've got COVID-19 pandemic, we've got a massive radical shift in how we work, how we live, people's um, survival instincts, their or flight instinct going up, right? Um, how do you think pe- people who maybe are using some of those ways of, of, of coping um, might be dealing with a time like this?
0: Well, I mean, we've seen this happen and, and you could almost predict it because we know that transition is perceived by most humans or change as some form of threat. So in the early stages, huge spike in anxiety. The anxiety was predominantly focused on health. Will I get this disease? How sick will I get? Will it affect my elderly parents? Will it affect people that I know that are close to me? Um, and that was understandable because it is a potentially fatal illness. So there's, there's, no, there's no kind of abnormality in terms of that response. As time has moved on, then we've seen that anxiety maybe broaden as people have become more comfortable with living under lockdown, having different working circumstances. And the concern has spread towards, okay, what does the future hold? Where's the economy going to go? Is my job going to be secure? Again, realistic worries, but for some people, they then become something that they can't get out of their mind. They ruminate on, they churn around all the time, and that drives a very, very high level of chronic stress, which is not good for our physical psychological well-being and i'd say in recent weeks what we've then seen is people i guess normalizing to this new existence um, and perhaps developing frustrations boredoms at restrictions they've got some moods maybe dipping a little and people becoming more depressed and certainly over the last week or so i've had two or three of my patients who have taken overdoses because they've been so worried about what the long-term consequences are going to be and and for those people they've been catastrophizing absolutely no doubt about it I suspect what we're gonna move to next as the the restrictions are lifted is another spike in anxiety. What does going back to work mean? How can I be socially distanced from my work colleagues? What's it gonna be like traveling on public transport? I don't want to do that, so how am I gonna get to work? All these unknowns. And of course, the advice that we always give, I'm sure you do as well, Petra, is just to try and look at things objectively. Try and focus on what you know to be factually correct. And then rather than spending time mulling these over in your head, trying to find a solution, talk to other people, look for kind of support and resources elsewhere, and try and just reframe things and identify those unhelpful thoughts and just refresh.
1: Yeah, because I think when we're stuck in a loop of fear and anxiety and perhaps the news is on 24 seven, but equally you could be saying, well, I'm connecting to, to good people and to my friends, but they, that could be just regurgitating the news and the fear response. So, where you you might say that you're you're balanced in, in your thinking, actually you might be constantly in a state of, of adrenaline, right? And, and just feeling more and more overwhelmed. So I want us to hold that in mind. But I also know that you work with elite athletes, right? So that's a pressurized environment. It's getting people to, to perform. And I don't think sometimes we talk about the, the poor end of mental health, so mental illness and the, the people who are struggling. But I actually want to flip it to that that elite kind of high performer. So so people like myself who are still trying to look for the opportunities, we've got some of the baseline around resilience, bounce back, like the things that we we want to do, but also our adrenaline is up. The amount of people coming to us for support might be up. Our businesses are under significant pressure to pivot to achieve that sort of thing. And I, I just I'm just curious from the work that you do with high performers, what are some of the mindset, skills, practical ways that we can actually look at this um, as opportunity or be able to deal or handle the, the stress and pressure?
0: It's a great question, Petra. It was and a loaded
1: yeah, one, I realize. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's good, though. Uh, it's a great question because, you know, one of my early loves was sport. And so I was very fortunate a few years ago to be able to combine my professional life with my love of sport. And as you just said, we work with a lot of elite athletes. And again, what our research has shown us is there's one key differentiating factor between what I might call ordinary Joes like us and these elite athletes. And when we ask this in workshops and training, we do, very few people know what it is. And when they hear it, they kick themselves because it's so obvious and it's recovery. Okay, so an elite athlete has hardwired into his or her schedule recovery every day, every week, every month. You look at their activity levels and they're on this kind of wobbly, curvy line, sinusoidal way. They might go in peaks for a period of a few hours, but then there's downtime. The rest of us, meanwhile, when we're busy, we work flat out, foot down, and we think, well, I can take a break on a Friday afternoon. I can get some time off. That is not sustainable. So our mantra for sustainable high pressure, sustainable high performance, is how do you embed recovery rest and recovery regular breaks into your everyday working and it's literally as simple as every hour take five minutes out get up from the desk go for a walk listen to some music practice some mindfulness speak to someone put your mind into a different gear there's a very good reason why school structure is around a 40 minute 35 40 minute lesson it's because people know in education that the human brain can only tolerate so much work for so long, after a while we get disinterested to kind of productivity drops away. So we should be exactly the same in everything we do. Now as therapists or people working in mental health, we have sessions usually 50, 55 minutes long and most of us are not great at taking a mental break between each session. We see clients back to back, right? You're nodding away, so I know that you can relate to this. It's so important even just to get up from the desk, open the window, stick your head out the window, just do something different, refresh what's going on, build in those recovery. And then beyond that, you've got to have balance through the week. So what are you doing around diet, hydration, exercise and sleep? Those are four cardinal pillars that most of us, when we're busy, unfortunately lose sight of very, very quickly. They can't. These are what we call recovery behaviors. They're essential to being regularly able to perform at our best and what we see in the business world is that the very best performers model this from the athletes and you speak to most corporate audiences and within groups there'll be a couple a small percentage of people who've mastered this they've learned this they've understood this even ceos who schedule in their diaries 15 minutes of mindfulness they might not put it in there as mindfulness they might not be kind of that comfortable to talk about it but it's something that enables them to take regular breaks
1: I love that so much. And in the the webinars and the manager support that I'm offering during this time to a range of businesses, it feels like that reactive state has gotten worse. So with the the video conference, the Zooms, the Webexes, whatever they might be, um, a common question within the the conversations that I'll have is there's no breaks between the video call, between the meeting, between the next thing that's very screen-focused, not to even go on the side kind of link of, of, of screens, right? but the idea that because of there's a certain fear around redundancies, around change, um, that people want to be seen to be working every minute of every day so that nobody catches them out. And yeah. they're losing that like explicit, open, even vulnerable conversation about the situation and the expectations. Um, and I think it's coming from two perspectives. So it's our personal responsibility to understand this. Even look at the research, there's so much science to back up, as you say, recovery. Um, but equally, there's something from a cultural perspective, right? Like, what is the what is the culture that, that that, I guess, should be created in order to sustain good mental health, mental fitness for employees?
0: Yeah, well, from our experience working the last 10 years with some major global organizations, these approaches work when they come from the top down. You have to engage senior leadership. I don't mean middle management, I mean senior board level people to model this behaviour themselves. There's a very interesting article in The Lancet, not so long ago, about how do organisations or how do cohorts of people, and um, how can we support them best in terms of their psychological wellbeing during a period of lockdown or quarantine like this. And the two things that came across very strongly from an organisational level were, first of all, there has to be regular, honest communication. Has to be honest. Don't there dress- needs to be <laughs>
1: emotional psychological safety in order to do that, right?
0: Exactly, um, and then of course that's got to be backed up with providing the right kind of resources. And we're seeing organisations who get this right making very regular announcements out using different channels, different ways, but being very clear that the message is the number one priority is that you, as an employee or as a partner of a business, you look after yourself as number one priority. It's like the old put on the oxygen mask analogy, you know, on the airplane. Because people recognize that if you don't do that, then yes, you may be tethered to your desk and it seems like you're working for an extended period of time. The quality of what you do will suffer. And ultimately that benefits nobody at all. But unfortunately in a lot of cultures, that's a message that people still struggle to follow. And that's why I say it has to come top down. You have to really, really demonstrate this from the leadership.
1: So it is the leadership. And then that wider circle is like society, you know, like, and people are reflecting in those who are on furlough, or perhaps their circumstances have changed on what slowing down is doing to them, for them, post panic. Obviously, if we're in a a sort of habit of pushing forward all the time, slowing down can feel a bit like, oh, what's going to happen, you know, which is interesting in itself. But there's something just around I don't know, competition, uh, media information, comparing this idea that we need to, as you said earlier, be self-made, be driven, be pushing and be, or be seen to be like comparing with other people on on social media. Um, What can we do? I mean, it's a very existential kind of broad question. What do you think we can do just when all of society, I'm in London, I think you're in London too. um, It's just kind of going push harder, push harder, push harder. What's the downside if we don't?
0: Well, I mean, I think the first thing you can do is ask why. Yeah. You've got, you've got to ask why. What, why. Why should we be doing that? Um, that's a hard question to ask at the best of times, but actually this kind of reset period that we're in now is giving people ample opportunity to review what they do and how they do it. And for a lot of people, that's going to change not through choice. You know, there's talk with some of the big organizations we work with that they will not be able to reintroduce more than 20 25% of their building population into a working space any one time so we're about to go into a fundamentally different way of operating and if that means for example that you've got six to eight hours of commuting time back to yourself please don't just rush into doing six to eight hours of more work just think okay how can i use this time more constructively to create a sustainable platform to work from so it might be well-being activities we've discussed before equally It might be things that we know are very good for our sense of well-being, which is being connected to others, volunteering, helping others, not activities that you would see directly helping your well-being, but we know from research that they're incredibly valuable. So I encourage everybody, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, whether you're furloughed, back at work, working from home, lost your job, take this as an opportunity to really sit down, maybe discuss with people who are close to you, a partner, relative, good friends, what really matters for you because there is this opportunity coming up for us to redirect our efforts and i think the uncertainty about the future in some ways should be used as an opportunity because if we're not automatically going to be getting back onto the treadmill that we were running around in previous years and months then here we can look for new ways of working and new things to do we might not want to be changing but There's the opportunity to do it. So rather than go inside your head and catastrophize, get outside of your head, start thinking more laterally. Look at what opportunities might be coming up and speak to people, share ideas. It's a great opportunity for creativity.
1: I love it. I love just the reframe on from catastrophizing to looking for opportunity and taking some responsibility for having those conversations or putting that perspective into your friendship groups, into your work groups in order to think about how do you schedule in that recovery period? I mean, it's so, like you say, it's so simple and we sort of know it, even us in the mental health and well-being kind of space, right? We know it. Um, And then we find that six weeks later, we're just like, oh, well, I just had a really, a bit of time in that year that I had to push. Like our brain tells us all sorts of things, doesn't it? That we have to, that we must, that we should, that everyone else is, all that sort of thing. It's It's the little voice in our head, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, just because we're experts in this area doesn't make us brilliant at applying it to ourselves. And the, the, the often used phrase, do as I say, not as I do, really applies here. But I think it's imperative as mental health and well-being practitioners that we do evidence this, we do kind of demonstrate it. And there's a couple of things that's happened to me recently that just, again, hammer home how important, but also how effective this is. So for the first, it must have been the first three weeks of being in the lockdown period. I was able to sleep on average an hour more per night. I just I tracked this with one of these devices. And I was also able to probably increase my regular exercise cardiovascular by about 40% in a week. And the tracked change for me was that over the course of 3 weeks my resting pulse rate dropped by 10 beats per minute. So there was no other variable it was just those two things that we all know from research are good for our well-being. Within three weeks the guy in his fifties, sees a very measurable shift in his cardiovascular fitness.
1: I mean, incredible. I don't but we need to move from the the knowing state to the the being and the doing, right? And mm-hmm. and and I love what you're saying about high performers because it just puts a different spin on it than the survival state of like, in order to have uh, maybe avoid mental illness or crashes, that sort of thing. But, we, you know, I want to be an elite performer and I sometimes work nonstop from nine to five, just like full tunnel vision in, you know, which yeah. which can be a benefit. But I do know the older we get, the more long term impact we can have, just burnout, physical health and um, mental health conditions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't you think?
0: Definitely. And Petra, they're just two sides of the same coin. You've got performance on one side, you've got mental well-being or mental health on the other. We're approaching both. Sometimes we're using slightly different language, but the ultimate goal is just to be more resilient, be able to perform better. Simple.
1: Yeah, and and performance can be deeper connection, more happiness, um, achieving the the well-rounded life that you want. Like sometimes we think that performance is either the athletes getting the gold medal or it's people who want to create an empire or a business. And of course it applies there too. But I want the people sitting here thinking, well, my high performance is feeling good, doing the things that I want to do effectively, staying healthy, being there for my family or loved ones. Like that's high performance as well and equally needs the investment in, in self.
0: Absolutely. I'm watching an amazing Netflix series at the moment called The Last Dance. And it's a review of Michael Jordan's career as an NBA pro basketball player with the Chicago Bulls. And he was a man of immense, immeasurable talent, really. But his transformation, probably in his second or third season as a, as a leading pro, was the recognition, and he had to be taught this by coaches, that actually, rather than doing everything himself, enabling the team around him to function more optimally as a leader was what was going to get them ultimately to their goal of becoming national champions. And and the same applies for us. So, yes, self-awareness and Look after ourselves, but then think about that connectivity around family, around peer groups, around friends, around people that we work with. How do we do this together? How do we share the importance of looking after ourselves so that it's a collective improvement? That's the exciting thing for me.
1: I love that. And the experience is just so much funner and and more uplifting, isn't it? When we can bring people together and and, uh, enjoy the experience. I love that. Um, Before I ask my final question, where can people find you if they want to connect with with your work and with you? So we're called Cognacity. Just
0: go to www.cognacity.co.uk. You'll you'll find us there. Send an inquiry. Love to hear from people and to share their experiences and help them in any way we can.
1: I've checked your website out before this. It looks um, amazing, the things that you do. Uh, Very science-backed, but very human. And I say that because sometimes when you got the science-backed, you're kind of like, oh, it's going to be super clinical and heavy. But you guys seem to have that balance of the superhuman practical approach, which I love.
0: Yeah, for us, it's all about trust and integrity. You know, if you can't have an open conversation with someone about how you feel as an elite performer or even someone struggling with their mental health, then we can't get very far. That's so important, Petra.
1: Love it. Um, and so finally, I know you're you're putting some sleep and exercise into place. You've had the opportunity to slow down yourself. But if there was one thing that you could be better at, or is, that the, is it a repeat challenge for you when it comes to performance or mental well-being, what would that be? What's the thing that you're working on?
0: Oh, for me, it's self-organization. So I've probably got undiagnosed mild attention deficit disorder. and And I work best when I've got people around me kind of holding me to account and just checking in with me about what I'm doing i get a lot of kind of new ideas i'm a great networker and connector and it's very easy to be drawn away to the next new shiny thing exciting
1: conversation
0: but as much as i as much as i love doing that what i've learned in recent years through our appraisal process that we have in the business is to really direct you know 80% of my time to the 20% of stuff that's most important to me as an individual and to us as a business. And you know, it's a it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle, but it's definitely one worth focusing on.
1: I love it so much. That's good advice for all of us as well as what we choose to to focus on because we do get distracted, especially in this day and age of notifications and all the rest of it. From the main thing being the main thing, you know, focusing in on what we're good at and how we can create the the best impact. Dr. Philip Popley, this has been a surprisingly amazing, fun human conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Delighted to surprise you, Petra, and look forward to doing it again
1: sometime.